These things just disappear, like socks. They just, they just disappear. Now, I know what you're thinking. You know, there's all that talk about that there's some kind of a dryer god that, you know, that has you know, sacrifice of socks. So, you know, that appeases the dryer god. But um, not in my life. Actually, the reason why my socks disappear is because my daughters happen to have a, uh, a way of, of taking them and, and wearing them, and I don't know where they go. In fact, this past uh, March, when Aubrey came to visit, my youngest daughter, she came to visit, she actually returned my favorite pair of socks that she took in December. And I knew she had them. I mean, I wasn't guessing. I went like, well, where'd those socks go? I went, Aubrey has those socks. I know she has them because my girls have been taking my socks for the longest time. And, uh, uh, you know, I don't know if it's just a father-daughter thing or are they just trying to show me that, they, that they, they love me by taking my things. But when things disappear, I kind of know that somehow my daughters are behind, behind that. And our, our, daughters, um, our daughters have had a habit of, of playing games with us. And it, it's, it starts way back when they're really little. You know, you start playing hide-and-seek with them. You know, it's the, you know, raise the blanket, lower the blanket, and the boo, you know, boo. You know, and it just it becomes a part of our lives. We play games. And, and I remember one time, Aubrey, uh, my wife Joy, took her to a, a pumpkin patch around Halloween. And, uh, and uh, she, she was filming this event. And she said, hey, Aubrey, uh, where are you? Thinking that Aubrey would go, I'm right here. I'm, I'm, at a, I'm at a pumpkin patch. But Aubrey's response was, I'm right here. Like, Aubrey, where are you? I'm, well, I'm right here. And the thing is, when we know where we are and we're, in, and we're simple in our presence in being where we are, that's, that's all we need. But when we play games and we tend to hide and disappear, like hide and seek, um, it's like we're not there. Uh, now... Hide-and-seek is a game that I'm sure all of you have played, right, with your kids, and you've done it as you grew up. Um, here are some examples of kids who are really, really bad at hide-and-seek. Go ahead and, and uh, take a look. Um, now, this looks like a clever... Now, this person thinks that they're really well... You know, in case they get hit, they can run right real fast. Go ahead and show the next one here. Um, <laughs> just another thing in the box, Mom. Go ahead, next one. I like this one. Now, when I saw this one, I thought, is that little Joe Newton? I mean, this looks like a little Joe. This one, I mean, that's a pretty good one. If he just painted his hands green, it would be awesome. He would never, I would not have found him. You know, a crocodile standing against the wall. When all else fails, find a bucket. And then, of course, uh, this is my favorite. This would have been Aubrey. This would have been my, my youngest daughter, Aubrey, uh, just thinking that I'm right here, but you can't see me. You know, when we, when we look at the thought of being here but not being here by disappearing somehow, we have placed ourselves in a position to suspend reality. I mean, we try to suspend reality. And it's reality that we really need to be focusing in on. Uh, the, the greatest concept of suspension of reality is when we, when we watch a magic trick. You know, the idea of a magic trick. And there are all types of different magic tricks. There's, you know, cutting a person in half and separating them. There's, there's uh, pulling a rabbit out of a hat. There's, you know, there's card tricks. There's, but there's a, a lot of them have to do with disappearing and reappearing, right? The, vanish, the vanishing trick, the vanishing act. The essence of a magic trick 
is to produce or accomplish that which seems to be impossible. It's uh, the perfect, now you see me, now you don't. And when we think in terms of what Jesus did, he performed the most amazing vanishing act in the history of the world, right? It was called his death and resurrection. But he, re- he, he didn't just disappear, he reappeared. And for us who are followers of Christ and people of faith in Jesus, we can, we can have an assurance that there's going to be a bit of that Jesus in all of us, the way it functions in our lives, a little bit of now you see me, now you don't. And it's here today, it's gone tomorrow. Job was tested by Satan. God says, uh, you know, go ahead and, and test him. And so Satan took away everything that Job had, all of his riches, his family, everything. It was here today, but it's gone tomorrow. And what was Job's response? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but I will bless the name of the Lord. Regardless of what happens, I will bless the name of the Lord. So um, I want to thank Philip for giving me this opportunity to preach in this passage this morning out of the book of uh, John in chapter 6. Uh, I'm going to be um, taking you through verses 22 through 71. I know Philip had verses 1 through 15 last week, and so he got 15 verses. I get the same amount of time to go through 50 verses. Thanks a lot. Appreciate that. So it'll be a little bit of a whirlwind. So let's pray, and let's jump in. Father, we're grateful that you give us your word so we can learn from it. We're grateful that we have your Holy Spirit to help guide us into your word so that we can understand it. Now, Lord, may you give us your grace to be able to live it. We ask this in your name. Amen. So just a little bit of a review. You've been going through the Gospel of John. Last week you looked at the uh, feeding of the 5,000, and then Jesus basically goes away, sends his disciples off to the other side of the lake. And uh, that, as Philip mentioned last week, that particular story, that account in the Gospel of John, is one of only two stories that occurs in the entire four Gospels. Only, only that story, the feeding of the 5,000, and the resur- death and the resurrection of Jesus is in all four Gospels. And so we're now going into the, the next day. The next day we find that uh, Jesus, uh, who went off on, up to the mountain, he had heard that his cousin that day, the day before where we're going to study today, he had just heard that his cousin John the Baptist was, was murdered. And uh, he was getting away to a, solid, a place of solitude, but the crowds pressed in, and he had compassion on them, and so he fed them, 5,000 men. You know, we know that, that that meant that there was a lot more than just 5,000. And he fed them with five loaves of barley bread and, he, and two fish. And then when that was all over, he sent his disciples in a boat to go across the lake to another place while he went up on the mountain to pray. And in the middle of the night, the storm comes up, Jesus is walking on the water towards them. Matthew gives a detailed account of Peter actually getting out of the boat and walking on the water. I love Mark's account of it, which is some, a lot of scholars believe it's actually Peter's account. Peter doesn't really go into detail of his own faith, you know, lack of faith because it's Peter's account. He wants to tell the story his way. But he does mention that you know, Jesus intended to walk on by them. I think that's a very funny thing. When you, when you think of that story that you know, the disciples are in the boat and they're rowing, they're trying to really you know, manage their way to shore. Here comes Jesus on the water, and he's just going to walk on by them. Think about that. 
I always love that because when we're in a very difficult storm in our life, if we're not looking for Jesus, we'll probably miss him. And he'll just walk on by. In the, in, in the Gospel of John, we really don't, know, we don't really see much of that story, but uh, what unfolds. But we know that when Jesus gets in the boat, they're immediately at shore. So now we pick up the story, and the next day they're in Capernaum. And if you have your Bible with you, just go ahead and uh, take that, open up to uh, chapter 6. We're going to be starting in verse 22, and we're going to begin the story here. Let me just find it here. All right, here we go. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there, was, there had only been one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where he, they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Now notice in this story, this is the first instance that we see, wow, He's here today. He's gone tomorrow. Jesus was here this day, but you know now it's the next day, and he's, he's no longer here, kind of like Myron. <laughs> you know, there, sometimes you, have, you look for the evidence, and you can find some evidence. The, 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 the crowd looked around. They saw the boats. They, they, they saw where the disciples went. They didn't know that Jesus didn't go there, so, but Jesus is not there. They, they deductively looked at the evidence. I remember when I was in construction, this is a long time ago, I asked uh, one of my laborers uh, to go take the trash from the construction site and take it to the dump. I gave him the amount of money that was necessary for the dump fee so that they, he can do that. He was on the clock. He, he took all the trash, put it loaded in his truck, took off. Didn't think much of it, but two days later, I get a phone call from a gentleman who had a piece of property up in a canyon. He said, I'd like you to come and pick up all your trash. I'm like, excuse me? He goes, my hillside is just full of your trash. And I said, well, excuse me, sir, how do you know it's my trash? He says, well, it's your address, and it's your company name. See, there was evidence that was left behind. It may have looked like the trash had just disappeared. It was here today, gone tomorrow, but the reality is it was actually right. In somebody, somebody knew where it was. So, of course, I had to go to my laborer and say, uh, we have a problem here. And he knew he was going to get fired for doing this because he pocketed the money and it acted like that he had taken that. But I showed him, you know, truly I showed him some grace at that point in time and said, because of the fact that this was a mistake that you made, that I'm forgiving you for this. You see, we have an opportunity to be Jesus at any time when something like this happens in our lives. We just need to find don't let that just disappear on us. We just need to find a way to actually be Jesus in that moment. If we look for Jesus in that moment, we will find him. Continuing on in the story, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Remember, he took off up a mountain, and here he is. Jesus answered them, Truly, I, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Verse 27. Do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set a seal. And they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? 
And Jesus answers them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who sent me. Jesus calls them out and says, Look, the only reason why you're here is because you had a happy meal yesterday. You're not too concerned about what I can do. You're just concerned about what you can get. And so he points out to them that they must do the works of God so that they could get the things that, they, that they're desiring. And so they think that they're really smart. Well, just tell us what we have to do. Tell us physically what it is that we have to do. But interestingly, Jesus doesn't give them a physical response. He says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who sent me. Well, what is their work? They're thinking in terms of their physical uh, effort, a particular process, their accomplishments. That's what we do when we, when we work, right? When we do work, work like yesterday, I was working out at Independence High School doing a beautiful day. I was literally digging holes, planting trees, spreading mulch. That's physical effort. But then there's, there's the type of work that's a process, like working something out. you got to work out a, a, a problem or a, you know, come to a solution. So if you do A and then B and then C, that's, that's work. Or an accomplishment, a lifelong achievement. You, know? you, you hope to be able to look back at your life's work. So what's happening here is they're basically taking a look at all of the, the, their physical effort, the, the process and the, the accomplishment and saying, tell us what, what we got to do. And unfortunately, Jesus doesn't give them a process. He doesn't give them something that they can accomplish. He doesn't give them anything they can physically do. He says, the simple, the work is to believe. Now, for many people, believing in God would be the most difficult work that they would ever do just because they can't fathom it. It would be so hard for them to actually put their trust and their faith in a God they cannot see. When I was thinking about this, I was reflecting back to um, something that happened when I was really young. And it was, it, was, it was physical work, it was a process, and it provided an accomplishment. And it put it all in, into, into perspective for me. When I was about five years old, I hated green beans. I mean, I know when most of us were five years old. Anybody, you guys like green beans? No? You, really? You like, oh, you, oh, Sarah's saying yes, okay. Okay, that's good. Unusual. But I, but my, the green, I didn't like, just like, dislike green beans. I, dis, I really hated those French cut ones, you know, that came in a can. Ugh, like, it's like eating tasteless wax. And so um, I would not eat them, and my mom would say, you, you need to eat those. You can't be excused from the table until you eat those. And so they all got up, and they went to the, to to watch the television, and I'm sitting there, and I'm trying to figure out, I'm coming up with a process so I don't have to eat these things. And where the dining room table was, right next to there was a door next to it where the, uh, it was my, my mom and dad's room, and you go through there, there was a bathroom of which it had a, uh, a clawfoot tub. So I quietly took my plate, and I tiptoed into the bathroom, and I thought to myself, no one will know that I actually dumped these green beans in the corner behind the tub. Because you see, when a corner comes together, the clawfoot tub is rounded. There's that little space about that big that, you know, you can... So I, I dumped the green beans in there, went back to my place. I sat back down. I took my fork and I scraped it on the plate a little bit. And, then, and I'm making like, sounds like that. And, then, and I went, I'm done eating my green beans. They said, all right, show us your plate. So I went in and I showed them my plate. It's empty. And like, all right, you can be excused. 
go back to my room. 15, 20 minutes later, I'm playing around, and then my dad comes in. He's like doing this thing with his finger. I'm like, what? And he starts walking through the house, and he walks me, you know, through the kitchen, and then through the bedroom, and right to the bathroom. And I'm thinking to myself, what, what, what? And the closer we're getting to the bathroom, I'm thinking, he knows, he knows. I'm thinking, who in the world walks into a bathroom and says, I wonder what's behind the bathtub today? But when I got to the bathroom, I looked in the tub, and I realized my sister had just had a bath, and the tub was still wet, and my sneakers um, left little dirty footprints to the edge of the tub. And so my father thought, what was that all about? And of course, he looked, and he found the green beans. And so he told me, you need to pick up those green beans, and you need to eat them. (laughs) Here today, gone tomorrow. Actually, no, I didn't have to eat them. But I did, I did learn a lesson. Wear socks. Anyway, all right. <laughs> so you're saying, what is, the, what, is the, what is the work that you've got to do? The work is to believe. And so the, they said to him, then what sign do you do? Say, all right, Jesus, you want us to do something. You want us to work. What's your work? Say, so what is it that you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it was written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And then Jesus said to them, well, truly, truly. He likes saying this truly, truly thing. Which means this is really important. I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now, Jesus is referring back to Exodus chapter 16, when the people of Israel were uh, coming out of Egypt and moving towards the promised land. For 40 years, they're wandering around in the wilderness, and they're getting hungry. And they're complaining to God, we got nothing to eat. And so he gives them manna that comes out of heaven. And they look at it, and they go, what is this? And what is it? It's manna. That's what it means. Manna means, what is it? The Hebrew term, Manna means, what is it? And Jesus is saying, look, there is a better manna. There is a better bread that comes down from heaven. The bread of God, and it's he who comes down from heaven. He gives life to this world. And so those who are listening, these people who are listening to him, they say, well, give us that bread always. In other words, they're saying, we want it here today, and we want it also tomorrow. We want it always. Well, what does it mean to want something that badly? A lot of our, our want comes out of three things. Fear, greed, or need. Fear, greed, or need. The people of, people of Israel who wandered around the desert, they were like, we need something to eat. Sometimes we want something just because we're fearful that we're never going to get it again. Sometimes we just we want we want something because we're just greedy. It's interesting, you know. You remember the story, uh, the movie "It's a Wonderful Life," Frank Capra's movie, the Christmas movie. It's my favorite movie of all time. Um, there's a scene in that where there's a bank run. You know, you know, it's just during the Depression time, and uh, there's a, a moment where you know George Bailey and his wife are on on, on a way out of vacation, their honeymoon, and. And there's a bank run. Now, for those of you who don't know what a bank run is, a bank run basically is when everybody who has deposits in the bank decides at the same time they want their money out. And, they, and you can't physically do that because your money isn't, all, not all your money that you deposit in the bank is in the bank at the same time. 
So if a bank run occurs, it's a not a good thing for the bank. And here are people, they were, they were in a time of fear because money was scarce during the Depression and uh, it got, word got out that money was probably getting low and you might not get your money and so everybody's running there to get their money as quickly as possible because might as well get something to nothing. And that, mo- that scene in that movie shows a bank run in a brilliant fashion. Jesus basically said, don't worry about what you need. Don't worry about your wants. For they can be satisfied always. But of course, they're thinking physically, and Jesus is talking spiritually. They're thinking about tomorrow or today when he's actually speaking of tomorrow. Jesus said to them in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The work of God, the belief in him who sent him. Now Jesus does this I am, I am the bread of life, I am statement. He does seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. The first is the bread of life that we see here in chapter 6. The next one is I am the light of the world, which basically talks about I am the one who will dispel sinner's darkness. That's in chapter 8. Then he also talks in chapter 10 that he's the gate. This refers to the entrance in, uh, of, of security and fellowship for those who believe in him. He talks about himself as the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. He's the one who protects and guides us in our life. He's the resurrection and the life, which means he's our hope and death. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, which gives us certainty during times of perplexity. He also says, I am the true vine, which tells us that he is the source of vitality and productivity in our lives. You see, when he says, I am, he's not just saying, I am the bread of life, the gate, the way, the truth, and the life. For any good Hebrew, the concept of I am is utter divineness. Exodus chapter 14, um, Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, Moses is being told by God to go tell Pharaoh to let his people go. And Moses goes, well, who's going who's gonna to believe me? Who's, when, if I go give a message, they're going to want to know, well, who sent you? God's response was, I am who I am. Tell them the I am sent you. It is the ultimate name of the divineness of God. So Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on that last day. You see, what, what, what Jesus has done is he's pointed out the fact that they have a particular work to do. They have specific wants that they need. But there is a particular thing that he must do, and that is to fulfill the will of God. And what is his will? If we take a look at what Jesus is offering... It's exposing the hearts of his listeners. Most of them, when it comes to what they do and why they do it, there are motivations. The motivation that comes from within. 
There's a motivation that's on the outside, things that, that you see that you want to move towards. But then there's a motivation for those of us who are people of faith that comes from a completely different place that Jesus is talking about. It's, 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 it's from heaven. So our, our will is found by having our eyes fo- focused and fixed in the right direction. For some, it's inward. For some, it's outward. And hopefully for those of us who love Jesus, it's upward. When we consider the fact that we have a life that's here today and gone tomorrow, how should we live our life? James gives us some instructions in his letter to the church. In chapter 4, verses 13, it says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. That's looking, that's looking outward. The inward was the motivation of why they wanted to do it, wanted to make some money. But James says, Yet you do not know that tomorrow will, what, what, what it will bring. What is your life? For you're just a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live to do this or that. To say, I want to look upward. That's going to be my motivation. Because life's just here today, gone tomorrow. So are you making long-term plans? Ask for what the Lord wills, not what you will. This is what Jesus is speaking of here. Verse 41, So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. That's the third time he's mentioned that. Think about that. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. And here's that, that phrase again. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that no one, so that any one of it who eats of it cannot die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, what's, this is an interesting thing that's happening here. He's in a synagogue in Capernaum. And he's talking to the people who live there. And people who've been following Jesus all over. And the people who are listening to this know Jesus and his family. A lot of, a lot of scholars believe that Jesus' his family moved to Capernaum. A short distance from Nazareth. And they're saying, wait, 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 you say you come from heaven? Uh, I know where you come from. His family, they say, we, we know Jesus. I mean, we really know him. Know him. Not like you and I know him. And his followers, they were following him because they had a hope in him. A hope that he would be the Messiah who would physically take out the Romans and set up an earthly kingdom that was promised by the prophets a long time ago. His family knew Jesus like no one else knew Jesus, and his followers knew Jesus the way they wanted him. 
One was looking inward. One was looking outward. But Jesus said, I need you to look upward. What was Jesus really saying? Here's what Jesus does. He lays the whole thing out. It's not about what you want, family. It's not about what you want, followers. It's about what I am. It's about what I am. It's about the spiritual me, not the physical me, not, not the family me, not the, the hopeful Messiah me that's going to be a physical king, which was what you learned last week about the fear of why Jesus had to get out of there. They were, the crowd pressed in wanting to set him. What did they want to do? They wanted to make him an earthly king. It was about the manna of God. Now, see, he refers back to the manna. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. It was just a physical thing. But I am the living bread, he says. You know, manna, we already told you, the meaning is, what is it? But there's a lot of meaning. The theological, uh, there's a theological term called typology, which basically means if you look in the Old Testament, you'll see a lot of types or images or um, uh, things that point to Jesus. And manna is, an, is a type of Jesus. It came from heaven at night. Jesus came from heaven to a world of darkness. It was not defiled by the earth. Jesus was sinless and it was sanctified. It was small. It was round and it was white. It says it's like a coriander seed. This suggests his humility, his eternity, and his purity. It was a gift. Those who received the manna, they did nothing to read. Just, they just woke up and it was right there. Those of us who receive salvation in Jesus, it's a gift. There's nothing we can do to earn it. It's provided for us. And the interesting thing is the manna was to be consumed, all of it. You couldn't let it, you couldn't store it up and, and, and save it for another day. You had to consume all of it in that day. Because if you consumed it up and you saved it for another day, it got really nasty. It got worms in it. It started to really smell bad. Except... The day before the Sabbath, you can, you can gather two days' worth, and it wouldn't smell, and it wouldn't get worms. See, God was in control of this, and Jesus is in control of God. You know, it's interesting. When we, when we think about consuming all of Jesus, it doesn't make sense to us sometimes. In 1966, there was a, a disaster on Mount Everest. It was the largest disaster on Mount Everest until a month ago. On April 14th, 16 people died on Mount Everest. Before that, eight people died in 1966, 1996. Excuse me. In John Krakauer's book, Into the Thin Air, he describes an incident when one of the climbers, his name was Andy Harris, is one of the eight who, who, who uh, climbed that day, who died that day. He had waited too long at the summit. when it, there was, it was a big storm, and he had waited up there hoping that the storm would pass. And on his descent, he realized he was desperately out of air. And with the oxygen deprivation that he had, he began to pass canisters that had been left behind by other climbers. But he would pick them up, and he realized, you know, oxygen doesn't weigh a whole lot. And he began to insist that the canisters were empty. And he would radio down in a panic, and they would try to say, no, use the canisters. They're full of air. But he couldn't, he could, even though there was, a there was a plentiful supply of air around him, he could not fathom it because he had it in his own mind how it was supposed to work. You see, 
it, consuming all of Jesus, that, that's hard to fathom. In fact, that's what be, began to be hard for those who were listening to Jesus in a moment because he said, I will give you for life in this world my flesh. So in verse 52, the Jews then began to dispute among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, when the word dispute that we read in our Bibles or argue or quarrel, that's not strong enough a translation. This is such a strong quarrel and dispute that it, it was like a bunch of people going to fisticuffs, yelling and screaming and arguing back and forth. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, time he says this, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he trot in Capernaum. Now, here's the problem. He's talking to Jews in a synagogue who knows that in Leviticus chapter 17, it is forbidden of them to actually consume blood. So they're going, how can this be? And there's a bunch of smart Religious people who know the word, who know the law, and they're arguing, and they're, they are freaking out. It reveals their worry. Why are they freaking out? Because they thought he was talking about an actual physical act, but he was the entire time talking metaphorically of himself that they were to actually consume all of him. There's a term in, in, in uh, literature called synecdoche. It's a figure of speech. And it's a common uh, figure of speech. So we don't really know what it's called, but we do it all the time. Um, I'll just give you an example. Some information fell into the wrong hands. That's a synecdoche. All right? Some information fell into the wrong hands. Were, the, were they the wrong hands? Like they should have actually went into another pair of hands? Physically? Literally? No. Basically what it's saying is that something, some information actually got into the mind and the ability to disseminate to some person. You see, it's actually... Into the wrong hands is a personification of some person. This is what Jesus is saying. He's not saying, physically eat my flesh and blood. It's a synecdoche. It's a figure of speech that is a personification of who he is. So verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? Jesus, knowing in himself what the disciples were grumbling about, said this to them. Do you take offense at this? then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life, and it's the flesh the flesh that has no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you, notice what he just said, it's the Spirit that gives life, it's the flesh that has, it's, it's, this is a spiritual thing, not a physical thing. 
The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who would not believe and that which one who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. And in verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. It's a hard thing. Who can listen to it? So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Simon answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed, and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. What are his words? Their eternal life. So that you might not just be here today, but to also be with him tomorrow. Jesus said, how about you? Hey, Peter. Hey, John. Hey, James. Hey, Philip. Andrew. Nathaniel. Even Judas. How about you? Are you just here today and then gone tomorrow? This speaks to us. If we allow the Spirit of God to speak to us, we might be able to hear something not of physical nature, but that of a spiritual nature. It, 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 it calls out our own personal vanishing act. When it comes to our work, will we just believe one day, and then when it gets really hard to understand, we'll just be gone the next when it comes to our wants, will we be consumed with satisfaction through our fear and through our greed or just simply our need because all we're thinking about is that which is physical and we're not concerned at all about that which is spiritual. When it comes to our own will, our own drive, our own choices, will we continue to Look inward or outward, or will we constantly commit our lives to that which is looking upward? When we are consumed with our own worries and life is hard and it's very difficult and things don't make sense, are we going to just give up because it's too hard? And with our own words, we have to ask ourselves. Are we believing in that which is empty, that which is here today, gone tomorrow, or are we believing in that which is eternal? You know, it's interesting, as Jesus began to, to talk to those who had asked the question, you know, where were you? How did you get here? He immediately began to, to weave a process to develop an accomplishment or a result that started with calling out their work and finished by focusing in on his words. I think the Apostle Paul sums it up best with this. In Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, he says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. God's word comes together in amazing ways so that we can live a life that is full, 
a life that gives us true confidence to be able to overcome our worries and for our work to matter and for us to be able to accomplish His will and not ours so that we may speak words of eternity. I pray that for you in your week, in your life, in your home, in this church. Let's pray. Father, there is much to learn in your word. There's much to to understand that we still struggle to understand. I'm sure many of us have read through this passage time before, and it just didn't make sense. What does it mean to, to eat your flesh and to drink your blood? And if we don't do that, we could have no part of you. But Lord, it's so good to know that you are speaking about our spiritual condition. I pray for everyone here this morning that they are making a commitment to consume all of you. Not leave any left, but to consume all of you because it is a free gift. We do nothing to earn it. It is humble. It is eternal. It is pure. God, we want all of Jesus. And may, may we find him here this morning. May we find him in our week. May we find him in our work. May we find him in our worries. May we find him in our, our own will. So that you get the glory. And we live the life that you called us to. In Jesus' name, amen.